Okay, so this morning we're going to continue with our three-part series, just looking at the truth behind the tradition of Christmas. And last week we looked at a lot of the basic details, why Christmas, why the 25th of December, and all those kind of things. Um, and we can already see that so much of the uh, things that we have come to know have been handed down really because of tradition and not because of uh, what the Bible says. And yet, at the same time, just as we said, you know, the devil clearly intended to lay a smokescreen down to try and keep people away from the truth of God's word that God was going to send his son, the seed of a woman. And he comes up with this elaborate and incredible counterfeit. And yet, just as with Joseph in Egypt, where the brothers meant it for harm, Joseph turned around and said, yeah, but God is going to use it for good. And the same thing here, that the devil has tried to make something that would pull people away from the truth. And yet, certainly over the last few hundred years, we've seen something that has actually led a lot of people to the truth. And God has used Christmas, certainly, uh, as a way of opening up conversations. People have been challenged. People will talk about Jesus at Christmas. People will sing about Jesus at Christmas. Uh, Even yesterday, we had the opportunity to go over to Bewley uh, just to look at the house and the lights over there, uh, the family. It was just, just a nice time. Um, and they had a, a room where there was a lady singing and a gentleman playing a piano. And it was very nice. And they were singing Christmas carols. And people were singing about Jesus. Now, okay, I accept a lot of the people were singing because of they know the tunes. And there may not have been a lot of connection there. But, you know, it's still Jesus' name that's being sung about. And people are still singing things that have been recorded in God's word. And God still speaks to people uh, today through his word. So it just gives us a, an opportunity. Of course, there's much that's, that's not scriptural. And we were singing uh, about this um, particular deer that has seemed to have an anointed nose as well. I'm not sure quite how that fit into the carols. Um, but, um, you know, there we are. Let's just pray before we move into this morning's study, shall we? Father, we just ask for your blessing upon this time. Lord, help us to put aside our preconceived ideas and, Lord, the tradition which does, Lord, keep us from the truth of your word. Lord, help us to understand what has been recorded and written in your word. And, Lord, stand back and marvel that, Lord, you've had all of these things planned out in detail. And, Lord, they're there for our discovery, Lord, to enrich and bless and encourage and strengthen us. So, Lord, this morning, may that be indeed what happens, that, Father, we leave here, Lord, just more in love with our Savior, the one who was born Lord, into Bethlehem, Lord, into this world for us. Lord, to be a sacrifice, a ransom for our sin. Uh, So, Lord, we just pray you open our eyes, our ears, our understanding. Uh, Lord, speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, as we said last week, we looked at Christmas past, effectively, uh, the origin or history and origin of Christmas. This week we've been looking at Christmas present, and excuse the pun, but really we are looking at the ultimate gift. It's in that word, that, that way of using the word present uh, that uh, we're going to be looking. Next week we're going to continue and conclude by looking at Christmas future. And really what we're going to be doing is looking at the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament that spoke of the Messiah who was coming. Uh, and some startling things will come out there. But... For now, let's then focus on Christmas present, this greatest gift. And of course we understand that, that God, in giving Jesus, gave us the, the highest possible, most valuable gift that could be imagined. He gave himself, he gave his own son. And as I said already, it's all in the, the preparation. But we're going to be looking also at the angelic announcements and asking a few questions about those. And then looking to conclude at the shepherds 
a manger and a lamb. That's where we're heading. So, first of all, I just want to highlight that, you know, we spend a lot of time each year preparing for Christmas. But I want to, again, just illustrate and mention that the, the Lord spent thousands of years. In fact, somewhere approaching 4,000 years getting ready for that first Christmas time. And that's not just a trivial comment because we need to understand that there's so much that God was doing, working behind the scenes, preparing things. And what we also understand is that that God wanted everything to be just right. I mean, we do, don't we? We For our family Christmases and so on, we want everything to be just right. You know, we we get the food, we, we set the table nicely. Many people will, you know, dress smartly on Christmas Day. I don't know what you do in your household, that's what we tend to do. Last till about, you know, half past ten, then the tie comes off. But you know, that, we, we make an effort, we try and do things properly. Well, God has done just the same thing for that first Christmas. He wanted everything to be just right. You see, the announcement had been made where we stand today, somewhere around about 6,000 years ago. In Genesis 3.15, God had promised that the Savior would come, but that the Savior would be the seed of the woman. God then told that there would be a specific family, and we see that in Genesis 12. We can look at some scriptures in a moment. But the Passover also had to be instituted. This model laid down, an offering for sin. Those who were marked by the blood would be saved. The law also had to be given. The book of Galatians tells us it's the law that confines all under sin. It's the law that shows that we need a saviour. But there were some very specific details in the law as well that had to be given. And then the monarchy also had to be established. And we read specifically in 2 Samuel 7 of some of the details of what God promised there. And then the location also had to be set. God did all of these things in preparation for the first Christmas. So don't think that it was just a trivial event. It was just a happenstance that God, you know, well, we might as well use this opportunity. Mary and Joseph are going to be going down to Bethlehem anyway. No, no, no. God had been planning the whole thing. Even the fact that Rome was now the ruling empire. And that the Romans called this census at this particular time. It was all part of God's plan. Again, Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between thee, speaking of Satan, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, speaking of the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, literally crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Jesus had, what was he, nails put through his feet. In Isaiah, we see another echo of this where the Lord spoke of the seed of the woman. Naturally, biologically, the seed comes from the man, but the Lord spoke of the seed of the woman. In Isaiah 7, we read this, therefore, this is speaking to Ahab, God said, ask me to give you a sign. What would you like me to give you? And Ahab turns around and effectively says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to ask. And God says, okay, well the Lord himself shall give you a sign then. He says, behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It means God with us. But and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou borest shall be forsaken of both her kings. You see, and this was in the time of the monarchy. The kingdom had been established. And the promise and the prophecy here was that the kings were going to stop. That there was going to come a, a halt in this, this lineage of the kings. And we talked a little bit about that last time. And Jesus ultimately was the one who was promised to sit on the throne of David. But notice also that there's this reference here to knowing to refuse evil and choose good. 
We'll come to that in a moment. But then in Genesis 12, God called Abraham. This individual who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, surrounded by idolatry. Again, following on from Babylon that we talked about last week, from Babel, from all of the idolatry that was starting to spread out around the world. Well, it had gone down to Ur of the Chaldees, not that far from Babylon. And Abraham is called out of that. And the Lord had said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. See, God was already saying, I want you to go to a special place. There's a real special reason why I want you to go there. He says, I will make of thee a great nation and I shall bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. That's the, the bonus part. But the real meat of this is in verse 3, and it says, And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was God's plan, to bring a blessing, all the families of the earth, for whosoever will. And ultimately that blessing will be through one of Abraham's descendants. By the time we get to Exodus, so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and the boys end up going down to Egypt. Obviously Joseph goes first. And then they're there for this period of time. And then they get into difficulty with the Egyptians, as you know the account very well. And so the Lord sends them a a deliverer. And he speaks to Moses and he calls Moses to go and to lead the people out. And then we get to this situation of the Passover. The, The Pharaoh refuses to let the Jews leave. Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. Now God was specifically, as he'd already done with Abraham, indicating that a lamb was to be the sacrifice. A lamb to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You see, back at Genesis 22, where we have Abraham on top of Mount Moriah, about to offer up Isaac, the Lord had said, in fact, through Abraham, that the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And of course, as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into Isaac, the Lord stops him. We'll look at that a little bit later as well. But then we read in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, but notice also, made under the law. So the law had to be given to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The law was such an important step in God's plan. And before Jesus could come, the law had to be in place. The law had to be there to confine us all under sin, to show that we're sinners, so that we would know that we needed a saviour. And then we come to the monarchy, and God makes this promise to David. He says, and when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. That's speaking of Solomon, which is exactly what happened. And he says, he shall build a house for my name, which Solomon did, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So even though we get to the captivity and the Babylonian captivity, the Jews are taken away, or Israel taken away, they come back known as the Jews after that, the tribe of Judah, primarily the ones that come back. Even though all of that, the Lord had promised that the kingdom would be established forever. And there's this promise that a king is coming. That's what the Jews were waiting for. And we read actually in Genesis 49 verse 10, one of the prophecies for Judah that Jacob spoke over them, when he prophesies over the brothers at the end of Genesis, he says, The scepter shall not part from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his between his feet until Shiloh come. 
And unto him shall be the gathering, or shall the gathering of the people be. This is a really interesting little snippet of history because what we find is that after Herod the Great died in somewhere around 4 BC, Archelaus, who was his son, was placed over Judea, as Entrarch, as the title given, uh, by Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Archelaus was rejected though by the Jews and pretty much everybody else, and so he ends up replaced by a Roman procurator named Caponius. Now, at that point, a very interesting thing takes place because the legal power was taken away from the Sanhedrin, this ruling Jewish council, typically 70 Jewish men. Now, one of the things that happens, immediately they lost the power, the authority to adjudicate on capital cases. The scepter was taken away, this right of rule and power themselves. And in the Jerusalem Talmud, it's recorded there that the priests mourned. It says, Woe unto us, for his scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. But what they didn't realize is at this point, up in Nazareth, there was a young boy growing up, no doubt helping his dad out in a carpenter shop. See, the Messiah had come. They just weren't aware of it. They'd missed so many of the prophecies, and they would miss yet more as well. But that prophecy is just one of many We'll look more next week that were fulfilled. But the location also, we read in Micah, everything started to get fine-tuned now. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So Bethlehem was chosen as the location. But let me ask you this, why? Why Bethlehem? Yeah, was it just that, that God kind of like did a kind of shut his eyes and pin on the map thing and that, that will do that one there? Was it that in heaven the Trinity drew lots and well Bethlehem will do? Or was there more to it? Well let me suggest there's an awful lot more to it. You see Abraham was chosen. He was a man of faith. Willing to offer his own son as a sacrificial offering. God will provide himself a lamb as we said a moment ago. The Passover we mentioned also was instituted as a model in advance of what would ultimately happen on the cross, but it required the shed blood of a lamb. The law also was instituted with the sacrificial system. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And of course the law, particularly Leviticus, gives us so much detail about the shedding of blood and why this was important. The monarchy also was necessary. You notice that David... No coincidence here, was a shepherd. He was a man after God's own heart. And of course, yes, David did come from the town of Bethlehem. So there is a connection, but is there there anything more than that? Well, yes, there is a lot more. It wasn't just random choice. Notice the common theme in all of these things that God had been working down through the ages. See, the common theme here is the shedding of the blood of a lamb. That's the theme that we see all the way down through the Old Testament, leading up to Bethlehem. So once again, why Bethlehem? We're going to come back to that in a moment. Let's have a look at some of these angelic announcements and fill in a few more blanks if we can. Well, first of all, I think we can agree that angelic announcements are not a normal occurrence. Probably most of us would uh, quite happily admit that we've not seen or heard from an angel directly, not that we're aware of anyway. 
So why do they appear on certain occasions? Well, clearly God has a plan. God has a purpose and God will send his angels out as and when he wants to for his reasons. But there is a theme that seems to follow through because once again, now we recognize that it's God speaking, but it's spoken of as the person of the angel of the Lord that called Abraham out of heaven the second time. This is again Genesis 22. and said, by myself I have sworn saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, and of course the Lord goes on from there and says that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. You see the common theme that you start to see is it all about the promised seed, the seed of the woman, the one who was coming. So not only all of the Old Testament, all the details, everything is pointing to this lamb that were to be sac- was to be sacrificed, but all the angelic announcements seem to center primarily, not exclusively, but primarily around the coming seed of the woman. Genesis 24 verse 7, The Lord God of heaven which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and which spoke unto me that swore unto me saying unto, notice again, thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee and shall, thou shalt take a wife unto my son from theirs. This is the calling or the, the, the commission given to Abraham's servant to go and find a bride for Isaac. But notice again this. And we find all the way through this the theme, in Exodus 23, 23, For my angel shall go before thee, and bring thee in unto the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Why? Well, because God was giving them a land, because God was preparing a place that was ready for his son to be born into this world. And had called a people that would effectively also be that protection for the seed to ensure the safe arrival. You see, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, and we talked about that a little bit last week, but then to Mary, then to Joseph, but then to the shepherds. Now, I, you know, I understand, obviously, the reason that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. We looked, again, as I said last week, and it's obvious because this announcement had to be made, Zacharias had to be made aware of what God was doing. Of course, Mary needed to know, and Joseph also. But why the shepherds? I mean, of all the groups of people that God could have chosen, well, hopefully you're already seeing that there's nothing in this that's by chance. There's nothing that's purely by coincidence here. God was interwoving all these details for his plan and purpose. So let's just have a little look at the shepherds. We're going to just pick up in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 8. And a very familiar portion of scripture And we read that there were, in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angels of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angels said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. Notice, we, we recognize that scripture, verse 11, and we, we often see it in Christmas cards, but the angel is speaking to the shepherds. 
And in one sense, in verse 11, we understand that for us, as in humanity, is born this day. But the angel is speaking to the shepherds and says, for unto you, unto you shepherds, is born this day. In the city of David, a saviour which is Christ the Lord. And then notice, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's the sign. We'll talk about that in a moment. And suddenly there were, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward man. And it came to pass that the angels were gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, Let us go now, even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, that the Lord has made known unto us. And one of the angels said to the other, did you get the postcode? Where are we going? What's the direction? They didn't get directions. They were just told a sign. Bethlehem at that time was a town of anything up to about 8,000 people. Not particularly big. But if there had been a child born in, say, Roland's Castle, and somebody says, go and find them. How would you know? Where would you look? And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They seemed to know exactly where to go. And when they'd seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Uh, you notice they didn't say, the shepherds, imagine what shepherds are like. No. They listened to what the shepherds had to say. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. See, Mary, just this young girl at this point, starting to piece these things together, trying to understand what all these things meant. And we're told, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So who were these shepherds? Do we know anything about the shepherds to whom these angels appeared on that particular night? Well, the traditional view is that they were just ordinary shepherds out on the hillside. They were just the outcasts of society. That was the way they were viewed. And it's been suggested that the because of this, because God likes to choose the things that are despised by this world and so on. We read in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So people say, well, that, that's the reason the shepherds were chosen. But there's far more to it than that. The Mishnah advised against a number of professions. This is one of the Jewish documents they have, part of their rules and their legal system, including that of a shepherd. It said that you should try and avoid that if you possibly can. It says, a man should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, or a barber, or a sailor, or a herdsman. So there you are, those the shepherds. Or a shopkeeper. For their craft is the craft of robbers. That was how it was viewed. But the Bible describes God of Israel, the God of Israel, as a shepherd in Psalm 23. And of course, some of Israel's greatest national heroes, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they were all shepherds too. You see, God promised that he will someday shepherd Israel. There's a number of scriptures that allude to that. And the work of Israel's future Messiah is also that of a shepherd. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So God seemingly has a very high regard for shepherds. 
So who were the shepherds in Luke 2? Why did God choose to send his angels to them? What significance did they have in the incredibly detailed plan that God had been laying down through the ages? And what does the Bible really say? Well, again, remember that Mark 7.13 tells us Jesus spoke and said that tradition makes the word of no effect. Now, you recognize that as your typical Christmas nativity scene, but tradition, unfortunately, has added so much. For example, very unlikely, as you'll see as we carry on this morning, that there were any oxen around. The individuals were not kings, that are often represented as kings. Uh, there weren't three of them either. There was no star over a manger. They didn't, they, were, they weren't just three individuals, the, the kings. As I say, they were actually magi. We'll look at that in detail next week. And there's a big question mark as to whether Jesus was actually laid in a feeding trough, as is often portrayed. Even the actual building itself where Jesus was born. Tradition has passed down to us that it was this stable that was attached to the side of an inn. Well, that itself also may not be true. So let's look at what the Bible does tell us. Let's start with this individual, Alfred Endersheim, who's a 19th century Jewish scholar and became a convert to Christianity. He highlighted something that actually tradition has obfuscated, and that is that the flocks that were kept around Bethlehem were destined for temple sacrifice. I mean, this is something that we don't tend to think about, but when we become aware of how many animals, how many lambs were required, see, the shepherds that were keeping watch over these sheep knew very well the intended purpose of the lambs under their care. All the way through the Old Testament, the the animals that were to be offered had to be without blemish. Special care was to be taken of them. And the job of these shepherds was to guard their sheep from becoming injured or blemished. And so it was to those watching over animals destined for temple sacrifice that the angels announced Jesus' birth. Now that starts to make a little bit more sense we start to see why the angels went to these particular shepherds. You see, it wasn't just a go have a look from a curiosity point of view. There was something more to it than that. See, the arrival of the ultimate Lamb of God was revealed to those responsible for watching over the sacrificial lambs that had always pointed towards Jesus himself. And Bethlehem was chosen as the place of Christ's birth, precisely for this reason. Again, in the Jewish Mishnah, we have this quote. It says, The lambs that were raised in this particular place were particularly special in that they were from a unique flock that was made up of sheep that were designated to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And in particular, the sacrificial lambs for the Passover sacrifices. The men who kept them were specifically trained for this task and were educated in what an animal to be sacrificed had to be like. Their job was to make sure that none of the animals were hurt or damaged because they had to be without blemish according to the Torah. And for that reason, these lambs, when they were born, were wrapped in swaddling bands to protect them from injury, to stop them lashing out or kicking. They had these strips of cloth, swaddling bands, and they were wrapped around in them. 
So being themselves under rabbinical care, these shepherds would maintain a ceremony clean stable for a birthing place. Again, according to the Talmud, all sheep found in the area from Jerusalem as far as Migdal Eda, which is just on the edge of Bethlehem, and on both sides were deemed to be holy and consecrated. They could only be used for sacrifices in the temple. If you wanted to raise sheep for any other purposes, there was the rest of the countryside of Israel, you could go and do that. But the area around Bethlehem, the sheep there was set aside. Again, in particular for the peace offerings and for the Passover offerings. Luke's original audience would have immediately picked up on the religious significance of the Bethlehem shepherds watching their flocks by night. From a quote by Harold Smith, he says, aware of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the Jewish temple worship of the day, they would have known that when you said Bethlehem, you said sacrificial lambs. The hills around Bethlehem were home to the thousands of lambs used in ritual worship in the temple. You see, you and I, we hear about Bethlehem, we sing about a little town of Bethlehem. But we don't tend to make that connection because it's been lost. Tradition has obfuscated this. But the truth is that Bethlehem was specifically a place associated with these sacrificial lambs. As a boy from Bethlehem, King David would likely have tended sheep destined for the daily offerings or used in the sacrifices on the high holidays in these very hills. It's interesting that David himself would have been looking after these very special lambs. We read of the account where he wrestles with a lion, wrestles with a bear, protecting these lambs because they have a very special destiny to be offered as sacrifices. Their blood was to be shed, but they had to be without blemish. Again, Harold Smith comments and says, Every day, according to the Torah, two lambs were required for a daily sacrifice in the temple, meaning that 730 were needed each year, plus the tens of thousands more lambs needed for the Passover, as well as for the other religious rituals. You see, there were thousands of animals, of lambs, that were sacrificed through the year. Under the Jewish system, under the law, these lambs came from somewhere. They came from Bethlehem. That was what Bethlehem was known for. If we speak about Dagenham, people tend to think about the Ford manufacturing plant that's there. If you speak about Sunderland, you think often of the cars that are produced there. There's various other locations around the country that you can think of, and there's certain products or services that are manufactured in those places. Well, Bethlehem was associated with these lambs that were destined for temple sacrifice. Harold Smith again says that everyone in Israel recognized Bethlehem as being synonymous with sacrificial lambs. Now, one again, just to remind you of that quote we looked at from Luke 2.19, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And this is in response to shepherds whose job it was to look after these sacrificial lambs. They come to see Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph didn't know they were coming. They just turn up. And Mary ponders them. You know, these weren't just regular shepherds. They had a very important role, an important job. And far more than just tending for and looking after, these shepherds would also be responsible for identifying the lambs that would be offered in sacrifice. You see, for first century Christians, again, hearing that Yeshua, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, who had automatically triggered an image of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, with that in mind, it's easy for us to imagine 
one of Luke's listeners saying, of course the Lamb of God would originate in Bethlehem. All the lambs of sacrifice come from there. You see, everything God had, had done was very specific, a, a purpose behind everything. Bethlehem was chosen because of this very reason. God had already engineered it. Now we're familiar, of course, with this prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Beth thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is why God was choosing this town. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be rule in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now we know that prophecy, but do you know what else Micah prophesied? We're going to have a look at it in just a moment. Before we do, let me just talk a little bit about location here. Because, of course, we know from what Scripture tells us that all the places to reside in Bethlehem were seemingly full. Jesus, we know, was therefore born in a manger. That's what we're told in the text. But the tradition that has been passed down to us has told us that the innkeeper directed them to his own stable, or a stable that was adjacent to the inn. The shepherds were in the fields around Bethlehem. And again, notice that the angels appeared to announce Jesus' birth. That's why they'd come to, know, to let the shepherds know that the Messiah had been born. And as we said a moment ago, the angels gave the shepherds a sign, but no directions. I want to highlight that because, again, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That was enough just telling these shepherds that the babe they were looking for was going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger was enough to pinpoint exactly where they needed to go. First of all, it's the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in specifically, not any old manger, the manger. The Greek actually indicates, again, it was defined, a babe lying in the manger. Uh, Thus a babe lying in the manger itself would be that which would confirm the words of the angel. There was something very significant about this manger. So again, the shepherds, they were fearful, they were afraid, no doubt a little bit amused by all of this. But notice what happens. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now of course the whole angelic visitation was just out of this world, as far as they were concerned, incredible event. But why would just seeing a baby in a stable next to an inn cause such overwhelming joy? Seemingly the angels had pieced together more than often we tend to do. Well, let me suggest it's because they didn't go to a stable next to an inn. In fact, there may not have even been an inn. Not in the way that we tend to think of it. The word translated inn is probably, well, probably in the Greek text is the word, it will be the word guest chamber. It's like an annex built onto the side of a home and typically a family home. And so the reason there was no room may have been also more to do with the ceremonial laws of purity than Bethlehem simply being fully booked. And there's a couple of references in Leviticus that suggest this. It's again, because Mary was about to give birth. She was about to make the place ceremonially unclean. Tradition has invented, of course, Hotel Bethlehem and the innkeeper, who was this benevolent individual who was willing to allow Mary and Joseph to take shelter in his stable alongside his sheep and donkeys and cows and whatever else. In fact, I had the opportunity to go to a Christmas play this week and uh, the cow actually took centre stage. Um, yeah, Somehow tradition has kind of obfuscated a little bit of the truth here. So where did they stay? 
And what made the shepherds so ecstatic? Notice again, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. They certainly joined some dots together. Well, let's look at that other prophecy from Micah. This is in Micah chapter 4, verse 8. It's just before the one that speaks about Bethlehem. And it says this, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now it's a prophecy, it's a scripture that we've been reading through, and you may have read through this in your Bible before, you've probably just skipped over it, not paid it too much attention. There's a little bit more here that we need to just dig into. This tower of the flock, the Hebrew phrase is actually, is actually Migdal Edar. It refers to a particular tower that was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. And this became a place that the shepherds used as a vantage point to look out, to make sure that there was no robbers or anybody trying to come and steal their sheep. And the name means the watchtower of the flock, literally. Now there were several of these towers that are recorded in Scripture. We find them in Judges 8 and 9 and so on. Also in Second Kings 9 and 18, also in Nehemiah. So these weren't uncommon towers at all. But this is one particular one that's on the edge of Bethlehem. Rabbi Short makes this comment. He says, This Migdal Eda was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. Migdal Eda is also mentioned in the Jewish Targums as translated as the anointed one of the flock of Israel. There's something special, distinctive about this particular place. Back in Genesis, this is actually referred to in where recording the death of Rachel. In Genesis 35, it says, And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. This very tower, it goes back, way, way back. That's a, a picture of what this tower would have looked like. And it was located, you can just see there the blue circle, and then just below that, the, the built-up area below that is Bethlehem. You probably can't see, but right at the very bottom, there's a little dot with Bethlehem. That's the, the, the town. And it's just literally on the, the edge of town. And the Rachel's grave right at the top there, the, the top dot in the center, is uh, where Rachel was buried. So as you come into Bethlehem, you have to walk past this tower. That itself is very significant. Because it means that Mary and Joseph would have walked right past this tower on the way into town. Again, it was built as a watchtower to be used by shepherds, again, for protection from robbers or wild animals. And again, given the significance of the sheep around Bethlehem that were designated and destined for temple sacrifice, it was an important lookout to guard against trouble, but it also served a dual purpose. See, during lambing season... The sheep were brought into the tower from the fields because the lower level functioned as a birthing room for sacrificial lambs. Now, being themselves again under special rabbinical care, the shepherds would strictly maintain a ceremonial, clean birthing place. It would be a very hygienic environment. At once birth, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in a hewn depression of the limestone rock that was at the base of this tower which in this particular tower was known as 
the manger. They would wrap the newborn lambs in these swaddling clothes, preventing them again from thrashing about harming themselves until they'd calmed down so that they could be inspected for the quality. They had to be, again, without spot and without blemish. This is all part of the Jewish oral tradition. Also, Alfred Endersham, in his book over a 100 years ago, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, discovered and uncovered many of these things. But it's not new. Approaching the subject from a Hebrew's perspective will show that while swaddling clothes were used in the handling of newborn babies, swaddling bands, as referred to in Job 38.9, were used for subduing animals prior to sacrifice. These swaddling bands were strips of gauze-like cloth used to restrain a lamb being prepared for inspection before sacrifice, to prevent thrashing so that they not blemish themselves. So the whole idea of wrapping a lamb in these swaddling bands was to prepare it for inspection. Inspection by whom? By the shepherds who would come and inspect it, getting ready for it then to be presented in Jerusalem. See, the sacrifice had to be bound in order to be valid. Binding an animal for sacrifice is also what happened with the Hebrew Akira, which is basically where we get the idea of uh, this offering up of Isaac. Remember, Isaac was bound as he's laid upon the altar. Back into Genesis 22 again. So there was no need for the angels to give these shepherds directions to the birthplace. Because they'd have instantly known it. The moment they were told they were looking for a babe, wrapped in swaddling bands and laying in the manger, there was only one place. See, these men who raised these sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple, they were familiar with the fact that these lambs would be laid in the manger, wrapped in these swaddling bands at the tower of Migdalida. So when this angelic announcement came, they knew exactly where to go. They also understood the significance, because no doubt they would have been aware of this prophecy from Micah, saying that it would be at this very tower that the Messiah was to make his appearance to Israel. And this was their tower. They'd have been very excited that this was their tower, and this event was happening right there. As Luke 2 indicates, the sign of the manger could only mean the manger at the base of the tower of the flock, as it's found in the Greek wording of Luke 2, chapter 2, verse 7, 12, and 16. You can't explain the meaning or direction of the sign they were given or their response unless you've got the right manger, the right shepherds, and again, the proper Hebraic perspective. See, when there was no room for Mary and Joseph at the guest chamber or the inn, and we asked, speak of this innkeeper, whoever it was that answered the door to them, whether it was a family home, whether it was just a, a private residence or whatever it was, wherever they arrived, They're given the news that there was no room. Joseph had to make a quick decision. Where are we going to go? I'm pretty sure from looking at all of this, Joseph made that very quick decision. I know. We just passed that tower on the way into town. It only takes five minutes. Let's go back there. And so they turned round about, back out to this place. Probably Joseph not realizing the significance of it. And that is where the Messiah is born. Wrapped in swaddling bands, laid in a manger. Again, as we said already, prophetically, that Migdalida, this tower of the flock, was the exact place in Bethlehem that 
Christ was prophetically said to be born. And God was faithful in assuring Israel that he fulfilled his promise to them of the kingdom. You see, the prophecy in Micah was post-exile. It was to encourage the nation that after they'd come back from the Babylonian captivity that God was going to fulfill his promises. There would be a kingdom. Because at that time, after the Babylonian captivity, they had no king. This promise was something that they should have been excited about. And prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, which was an early Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, that of all the places in Israel, it would be the Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock in Bethlehem, where the arrival of the Messiah would be declared first. Again, and thou, a Tower of the Flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. And that's an interesting comment, because of course, Christ will come twice. Firstly, as we looked at a Bible study a couple of weeks back now, as this suffering servant, the one Isaiah portrays, but secondly as the, the king of kings when Jesus returns the second time. But the first dominion, it came to this particular location. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Warren Wearsby, another respected commentator, says this, as the pregnant woman must deliver the child, so Judah must be taken captive to Babylon. It will be a time of pain, but it will eventually bring blessing. God promised to deliver them and restore them, and Micah uses the prophecy of the Babylonian captivity of Judah as a pledge to guarantee the birth of Christ at Migdal Eder, at Bethlehem, which is exactly where it took place. Micah prophesied that as surely as the Babylonians would soon carry away Judah in the north, so the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And here Micah pledges that as surely as Babylon would carry away Israel into captivity, so the Messiah would arrive at the Tower of the Flock. And of course, Micah goes on with the prophecy in chapter 5, and specifically again speaks of Bethlehem. In the book, Why a Manger, we read, Migdalida, the Tower of the Flock, was the place where lambs destined for the temple were born and raised. Every firstborn male lamb from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy set aside for sacrifice in Jerusalem, and generations of hereditary shepherds tended the sacred flocks. Remember, David almost certainly was one of those. So, to conclude, this was the greatest present ever given. God giving his son to this world, that we might have life, that we might have payment for our sin. BC wrapped up in that is the fact that It had to be the shed blood of a lamb that would atone for sin. And God gives his own son as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And this son of God, this lamb, was born in the town of the sacrificial lambs and inspected by the very shepherds who would approve the lambs to be offered in Jerusalem to atone for sin. Why was it these shepherds were chosen? Well, because of their job, because of what they did, they were chosen to come and inspect this child, this lamb, to prove him for ultimately a sacrifice in Jerusalem, which some 33 years later would take place. Jesus was laid in the manger, wrapped in swaddling bands to prevent any blemish. He is the Lamb of God, slain 
from the foundation of the world. So much of what we've heard over the years, the tradition has taken away so much of the wonderful truth that is hidden, concealed sometimes, but there in God's word. And you start to again just see how much preparation and planning God put into that first Christmas. We'll continue next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning just to look at these things. And Lord, to realize once again that right from your birth, you were the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. You were the one born to die for us. That the purpose, the sole purpose of your coming to this earth was to defeat death, to defeat sin, to claim victory over death and sin, to bring us new life. And Lord, as we meet here this morning, we meet, Lord, because of that very fact, because you have brought us new life. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you went to such incredible lengths for us, that God's plan, that the the Father's plan was so complete. And we see that it took so many years of God engineering and working through families and individuals and situations and nations to bring about these things. Lord, way beyond the ability of man to contrive. We see, Lord, your hand upon all of these things. And Lord, it just speaks of your great mercy and your great love for us. And so, Lord, this Christmas time again, may we celebrate. May we rejoice that Jesus, you came to this earth and that you are our Savior. We just thank you for these things now. Just continue to help us to grow in knowledge and grace. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.